Well, hello and welcome to the Biz Coach Show, hosted by my biz coaches and presented by the TLG Group. Your hosts today are David Macon, that's me, and Eric Whitmore. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing ecstatic, thank you. I'm, I am ecstatic, thank you, David. I'm recognizing we're recording episode number 20 today. I uh, know, pretty significant, right? We're, we're making yeah. some progress, so awesome. Well, if you're new to our show, if this is the first episode you're checking out, we're glad you joined us. Uh, we're focused on giving entrepreneurs the edge they need to succeed. And uh, yeah, 20 episodes, a lot of good content. Definitely encourage you to go back and check out some of our past episodes, but also subscribe so you don't miss future episodes uh, because we have a lot of great content, whether it's just Eric and I unpacking a topic or we have a lot of great guests that hop on the show as well. And we'd love to share that with you. So don't forget to subscribe and connect with us on social media. Well, Eric, today we are talking about, uh, I think, a pretty important topic, which is knowing your business. And uh, this actually kind of came up organically in a conversation we had on another episode and said, hey, we should probably do uh, an episode just on that. So here we are, we're doing that. So um, we're gonna go through uh, just a few things that we think are important for small business owners to understand, um, or maybe even somebody thinking about starting a business that they should do some research on before they begin their business. And this isn't an all-encompassing list, uh, but we do think these are some of the key points that'll get you set up for success and put you on the right track. So let's talk about maybe the first thing, which is the market, right? The marketplace in which we're going to be launching our business into. So uh, what are some thoughts you have on that, Eric? What should small business owners be thinking about when it comes to knowing your business and knowing your market? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to use a few stories to illustrate the things you don't want to do. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I have a, a, a real life version of this. So knowing your market, right? For instance, uh, I'm going to use the analogy. You remember the coffee shop that we owned quite a few years ago? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> pretty excited. It was a great opportunity to uh, kind of break into something and I didn't know a ton about at the time. My partner was the was the craft coffee connoisseur, we'll call him. And uh, we went and did tastings and all that fun stuff. But um, it, what I brought to the table was the retail experience, the, the having worked in the restaurant, uh, the finance and, and some of the legal components, right? So I was familiar with all that. And that was the role that I played. And then our third partner uh, was more of a marketing specialists. So the three of us collaborated on this project. And, 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 you know, as we talk about knowing your market, right, who's your end consumer? So one of the things that, that as much as we had the conversations and discussed about um, uh, the, um, what was important to these people in, with craft coffee specifically was good quality coffee, one, Right. And, and no offense to some of the big national brands that are out there, but they don't typically really sell good quality coffee. Um, they sell a lot of sugared, you know, <laughs> milk products that they, you know, they throw together. Anyway, yeah. um, the, the people that like craft coffee, they, they want really good quality coffee. And that's and, and it's, you know, knowing what they wanted was super important and in launching that business. So we invested some time. We had some really good baristas. We we acquired an existing business, and one of the one of the mistakes that we made was assuming that everybody understood what we understood, hmm. which was, uh, you know, like for instance, when we acquired the business, uh, and those probably fixed to some of the other tactical things that we're going to discuss today too. Is uh, we knew that the average after doing the research, we knew that our average ticket per consumer was about four dollars and forty cents. 
So I did some, uh, did some, uh, you know, due diligence, and I'm like, okay, so what we need to do is drive that to about seven dollars and fifty cents per ticket. And what well, all we need to do is get an uptick. You know, let's uh, you know, use your old analogy, David. It's like, um, you know, how, how many people want to fry with that Coke or, or a fry and a Coke with that sandwich, right? That right. Like burger that you used to talk about. Uh, but the um, knowing your market, not all those people were into that, right? And so what they were choosing to upgrade into or what they were willing to add to that, that cup of coffee was... Um, took some time. We didn't know that going in inherently. And we even doing due diligence of shopping other competitors, right? We didn't really know what that was. So knowing your market, that's a, a piece of that. And I think the other thing I would incorporate into that message that as we're thinking through it, um, when we acquired the business, I did all the financial due diligence. I was very confident that I did a quality job. And I, you know, but we, what was happening was we were losing business revenue, right? Over time from, from the time we acquired it. What I what I failed to recognize, uh, we as a collective company failed to recognize, was it wasn't the financial due diligence. It, it was the um, uh, uh, place in the market that this particular coffee shop that we acquired held. For instance, uh, the shop had been around for 10 or 11 years. It was a little dated, needed some cleanup, which we were willing to do. We went and did the cleanup work and everything like that. What had happened in the previous year before uh, our, our company buying this existing coffee shop, they had opened five additional coffee shops within a five mile radius mm. the preceding the time that we acquired it. And many of them were like not even a year. They were like three months before we buy it, five months before we bought it. And so what happened was uh, as, as those other shops opened up and they were popular, they were newer, they were kind of like the, the flavor of the month kind of thing. Well, as they built uh, um, momentum and got more people going to their shops, and again, they're only two or three miles away in some cases, it's around the corner kind of perspective that what, what was happening was people were going and visiting these other shops and then becoming regulars there while we were transitioning from the previous owner to our new ownership and making adjustments and things like that. So uh, what ended up happening was uh, they had a more defined strategy, whatever. And so consequently, um, we ended up losing market share to those five other shops that opened. And you know, some of them were bakery shops that did coffee. Some of them were breakfast shops that had coffee. And some were actual, you know, and what we had was a good coffee product. Uh, we filled it in with some food solutions and things like that, but they weren't the food solutions people were looking for. And consequently, as, uh, as it evolved, we ended up just kind of petering out. And, and then uh, the final nail in the coffin was the uh, across the street after two and a half years of running the shop, a, uh, a Jiffy Lube was acquired, an old Jiffy Lube that had been shut down, was acquired and converted into a what was it's called a SIP was the name of the company. But uh, it was a um, craft coffee in the day and a craft brewery in the evening because they oh, took the basement. Nice. Yeah, yeah, they took the basement of the. Um, of the Jiffy Lube and converted that and made it like their keg room or whatever. And, and so, yeah, they had craft coffee during the day and craft beer at night. And I'm like, man, can't compete with that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So yeah, that's, um, you know, there's a, there's a number of different lessons in that little bit of story, but it, it, the, I think that the, you know, understanding who your people are, what that, what's important to them knowing, you know, where in the industry or in the industry, but like, for instance, in that particular market, um, 
you know, knowing that five other shops had opened up, doing the due diligence. And, and I, I'm certain we could have gotten that data. I just didn't think to look for it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think um, great, great illustration. I was just going to add, I think it's important too for, for businesses to, to be evaluating the size of the market too. Right. Especially. If oh, you're, yes. Yeah. Great point. Yep. Yeah. When we first looked at it, I'm like, there's only a couple coffee shops around town. Well, yeah. once we got in the car and started driving around and it took us about nine months, you started realizing, wow, there's a lot more coffee shops around here than we thought there were. Because right. initially we disregarded it as a um, a bakery. But it's a bakery that has lattes and other drinks and stuff like that, you know, and they have espressos. And and I'm like, oh, no, that's just as much a coffee shop as we are. Right. Yeah. Even if they're leading with their their baked goods. Right. And so it, that was to your point. What's what's the addressable market out there? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, and I think geography, right. As you're talking about has a, a big, I mean, super local, I mean, a couple streets over coffee shops can impact you. I think, um, I was thinking of an, the example of like starting a pool cleaning business or scaling your pool cleaning business in Arizona, that's going to do great in Utah, not going to do great. So it's, it's just really understanding like, you know, how big that market is and, and that, yeah. can, you know, uh, be a, a big factor based on, what's around you and important to do that research and not only, you know, how many people can you attract, but repeat customers and all of that. So very important to understand that market for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So awesome. Uh, well, let's transition then once we kind of understand our market, let's uh, look at our industry. So what's important for a small business owner to think about or know about their industry. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this kind of, as, as you think through that, I, I, I could go, like I said, I could go through a number of different uh, stories over the years, but um uh, for instance, the wireless industry, right? The, the knowing that got a lot of background experience in that, but you know, what's, what's the industry who you like, okay. So early days of the wireless industry, when I first did my own wireless entity, uh, it was, um, uh, at that time it was very popular to do uh, multi-carrier. Mm, so yeah, at the right. time, um, when, when I launched just right wireless, we had, uh, I want to say six or seven different wireless carriers in the, in our shop. And that was a very popular play was to have everybody available. Uh, what transitioned very shortly thereafter was that all the carriers were like, eh, we don't know that we want you to have all those different brands. We want an exclusive brand. We want you to carry our brand exclusively. And maybe you can have a plus one and a plus one wasn't necessarily another cell phone provider or wireless provider. It was often an internet carrier or a, 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 a satellite TV solution or something like that. And so it changed the nature of the industry. I, I remember one of the, the last brands that existed, Wireless Toys, <clears throat> was, um, was a, a relatively popular brand. I think it started in Detroit, expanded pretty rapidly throughout the U.S. And, and a lot of it was a franchise brand that they did. But the... Um, you know, it was an aggregation of all these different wireless units, uh, you know, cell phones and, and some other brands and things like that. They, they probably more focused just on the phone specifically. But um, as the industry pivoted and people wanted exclusive brands, it was like, well, yeah, we've gotten, to, you know, all these different relationships and now you need to get down to just one. Well, you know, when you've got six brands, you look at it, no one carrier necessarily, in most of those cases, makes up. 80% of your business. So you're not sure which one to go with. 
So now you're enticed by who's going to give me the most money and all that kind of stuff. So, right. uh, but to, when when the, knowing the industry and knowing what's going on in the industry and kind of seeing where the industry is going is another key component. Yeah. Right. So you know, when knowing that everybody was moving to a single brand, I don't know that anybody saw that. I know I didn't see it at the time, and I would have been comfortable uh, staying the course of being a multi carrier because I still felt like it was a better solution. Because if you walk into a T-Mobile store, they're going to sell you T-Mobile. They're going to sell you something else. Right. You know, if you walk into a Verizon store, they're going to sell you Verizon. Now, it's not necessarily bad or good. And quite honestly, by the time the industry had evolved to the degree that it was, there's like a 5% variation between different carriers. Right. You know, Verizon may be better in San Diego than it is in, you know, LA or something like that. But generally speaking, you know, I mean, we're, we're here in, in Arizona. Um, Verizon has always been one of the prime carriers in the market, mostly because they were, this is one of their original markets and all of their analog towers that converted to digital are all over the hinterlands of the desert and then, and then and right. up in the mountains. And so they have some of the best network in the Arizona market. That's not true in some of their other markets. Right. Right. And so knowing that was another big thing. So anyway, as the, as the, as the, as the industry pivoted to these specific one individual contracts, it was knowing, okay, where, where's the best play here? And as an individual business owner, basically for all intents and purposes, who I, who do I, you know, align myself with? Right. And what does that do for my business? But understanding that, seeing that where it's going, you know, the, um, as, as you talk about industry again, as well with the, uh, um, some of the other um, business opportunities, uh, pools, you, you mentioned pool cleaners, right? But yeah. actual pool design is a whole nother thing, right? And there's, that, there's a, a lot of changes in the industry there that have evolved over time. Yeah. Um, and, and knowing kind of where everything's going there and making sure that you align yourself accordingly with that as well. So it's another big thing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think, um, I mean, right now, one of the things that, I mean, we've been talking about almost every episode is, you know, how fast is the industry adopting technology, right? So not right. just individual competitors, but when you, you know, look at the aggregate of that, what's everybody doing across the industry? And if you're not doing what they're doing, you're going to fall behind. And, and I think about, um, you know, recently we've seen customer preferences play into that, like, you know, uh, organic foods, right? So if you, you know, operate a, a snack bar or something in a, in a corporate lobby and people want more organic and you're not supplying it, you're going to start losing out on that. Or if yeah. um, I think about chiropractors, which I know we've been a, both benefited from chiropractors over the years, but, um, right. you know, if you're, if you're a chiropractor and you're not doing, you know, massage as part of your practice and, um, you know, health and wellness or diets or supplementation, but every other chiropractor is doing that, um, you're now going to lose out because your clientele is expecting one thing and you're not delivering on it. So it's important to keep up on what the trends in the industry are and where the industry is headed for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know what, I'll, I'll go again, I'll go you back and use the wireless as a, an example, but this is a big one. T-Mobile, when they introduced with Express, when we worked at Express, the the um, um, uh, consignment inventory solution. Yeah, yep. I mean, I literally was having this conversation with somebody last night. And I'm like, you have no idea what impact that made to the average wireless dealer yeah. in the industry, right? And and like, and this is shortly after, right? I mean, we're only talking a few years after this whole pivot to going exclusive to one brand. 
And I'm like, I, I mean, cost of goods sold at one of my previous companies that I worked at, uh, we were 62, 63% cost of goods sold. That wow. means you're trying to operate the business on 37% margins. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you got that much money tied up in inventory, I don't know, by the way, phones are coming out left and right as fast yeah. as, you know, and literally we had gotten to the point, um, we had moved past the fact that a phone would be a value of, of, of significant value for like three, four, even five years in some cases to the point where it was like every, I, I would say at that point, it was probably every year a new phone was coming out. I mean, every year a new phone was coming out, but it was like so much of a pivot that it was like, oh, you got to get the new phone. Yeah. And then it literally, and then you remember, we literally got to the point where it was like three months, you buy a phone and, and three months later, the, there was another phone that was far more advanced. There, yeah. You know, was, well, there, was, there were a lot more manufacturers competing at that point. You, you that had too. Yeah, Blackberry, great point. you had, you know, Motorola. I mean, all of those were still really strong and they, a lot of them are, you know, some are dead and some are tapering yeah. off, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> so every one of those manufacturers would have their flagship, which meant you had to, you know, go buy, you know, about 50 per location if you if you want to meet the demand, right, or more yep. and just for that initial order. And then, you know, re-upping that order every week or month, it was, yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. And, and you're buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of inventory that would be outdated within a few months. Yes, absolutely. So moving, <clears throat> moving to consignment inventory was a one play that T-Mobile did that they really captured a ton of market share, in my opinion, because they had committed to having their distribution done by dealers, right? Basically, for lack of a better term, a, a yep. franchise, franchise or, uh, or franchisee, I should say, Um and, and allowing them to expand the brand and, inter- and, and drive the sales revenue. Uh, the, so the problem was that the average small business owner couldn't afford enough inventory to drive the numbers that they wanted to achieve. So I know a lot of other carrier dealers, the other brands like AT&T, Verizon, and some of the other smaller ones as well, they weren't able to get the kind of results that we were able to get because we didn't have to worry about whether or not we had enough inventory. We just sold what we sold and then paid right. for it as we sold it. Yeah. And 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 um, we would have two and three times the inventory that some of these other guys would have. Uh, and 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 they would ask me all the time, "How'd you get that deal? How'd you get that deal?" I'm like, "We're just that good, you know." <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> but uh, that was a, that was a huge differentiator. And and when you go back and you look at the annals of time, and you look at the 2012 uh, AT and T T-Mobile p- uh, proposed merger that didn't go through. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, T-Mobile leaps ahead of AT&T and then, you know, it starts competing or leaps to, um, I think there was another acquisition of the, 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 the Sprint eventually did, but the, it made, it basically made T-Mobile like the carrier yeah. um, on, on a lot of levels, right? I mean, there's arguments of who's the better or whatever, but when T-Mobile basically went from, eh, it's that carrier with no with no coverage to all of a sudden they're a major player and they're the only one getting net gains in the industry for quite a few right. years when we were doing yeah. it. Um, everybody else was having negative net gains because they're losing more clients than they're bringing in. It was a game changer. And a lot of that was because they had this mass distribution channel where we didn't have to worry about where we had enough inventory and no other carrier was doing that. Yeah. So well, you paying attention to the industry and, and where's it going and who's, you know, who's to, and, and, and if, if Verizon and AT and he had any sense at the time, they would have tried to do, implement a similar strategy. Yeah. And that's, and you bring up an interesting point about timing, right?
right within the industry if you're getting into an industry right of course timing is important if you're yeah. getting out of an industry right could be important but also <laughs> equally you know, important <laughs> yeah and, and there may be times you know to really capitalize on growth which we did a number of times when you know things were going really good and you didn't have COVID and all those other things and you know let's let's double down right now because you know the iron's hot and then there's times where you need to read it and say we need to scale back or maybe even you know shut down a couple of branches or reduce some of our staff because things are tough and looking right. at those changes in that industry helps you make those decisions um, before they're necessary to save your business you're doing it ahead of time so you can you know safeguard your business which is important right yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's a good analogy. I mean, when we when we sold in 2017, I said it's just a matter of time, and this this business is going to be a fraction of what it is today. Yeah. Um, since then, I think that the the well, I know for a fact that it, at least some of the major carriers have already done two swaths. You mentioned closing. Yeah. Uh, two different times, they've taken 10% of their total distribution and shut down 10% of all those at least twice. Yeah. Uh, one going into COVID one during covid and i believe they did it actually you know, a third time now since then so that's three yeah. times like the 30 percent reduction yeah absolutely so, and and now you know, like i somebody uh mentioned to me the other day they said they they'd like to retain our services helping them acquire a business as, mm -hmm. a, as a coaching solution right help them kind of guide them through that process and i said uh and they, they asked me about wireless and i'm like mm, you don't want to buy a wireless store <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that is not what you want to be buying today. So again, knowing your industry, yeah. right? Absolutely. Cool. Uh, okay. Well, let's transition to uh, your product and service or product or service, depending on how you want to look at it, depending on what you're selling. Uh, so let's talk about that. Why is that critical as a business owner? Well, and I, I, this, I mean, this is very, very uh, basic in my opinion, but I mean, if you don't have a product or service that matches up with what's already out there, then you don't have a business. Right. Yep. Um, I do personally have uh, really kind of adjusted to more service based for a number of different reasons. One, um, ease of getting a business off the ground, um, scaling up a business. You're not limited to inventory control situations when you're creating a product. I mean, if you have a great product, then all by all means. Um, but there's not a lot of um, you have to be really unique when it comes to a product design. Uh, now, software is a little bit different, right? Because, I mean, you can create a software. Uh, but, um, you know, generally speaking, if you look at tried and true businesses, product solution businesses, we've had laundry detergent for how many hundreds of years? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> had, I mean, you can only do so many variations to toothpaste or whatever. And yes, you can come up with something new and unique. But I like service-based businesses because, more and more people are coming to coming to coming to grips with the idea of I'm willing to pay for somebody to make, do this service for me, and you can do so much to differentiate in service versus a product. Yeah, in absolutely. my experience, my my yeah, and and I think again we're talking smaller business owners, right? There's a lot of money that gets tied up in a product design. Um, now, if you're already in a product based business, by all means, right? It, 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 the it, but the key is to make sure that you have a great product yeah. um, with the service you can determine what that looks like that's, uh, that's kind of why i like the service-based industries uh, and there's so many new things that you can create right we talk all the time about solving problems one of the most important things about de 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 determining what your product or service is um, and then being clear on what the problem is you solve so 
if I recognize there's a need in the market, I recognize there's an issue in the market and I have a product or service that solves that issue and I market effectively, it, it can't help but be, be successful. Right. But, uh, but having a quality product or service is super important because if you don't, you don't, like I said, you don't really have a business. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I think one of the things that gets lost is, and um, we've talked about this a number of times is if you're the person that starts that business, you know, and you had that idea for the, the vision for that product or that service that you're going to bring to market, you, you tend to understand that product or service really well. I mean, it maybe even you, you think it's better than maybe it really is because you're so passionate about it. But I think sure. what happens is if you buy a business or uh, you know, you're scaling your business and you get further away from that, new products are launched or new services are offered, you start to lose that kind of intimate awareness of the product or service or your team does. And I think that's a miss that a lot of people make is, you know, they need every person in their organization to fully understand the product and service at a, a pretty in-depth level, um, whether you're on the sales team or, you know, customer service or fulfillment or the estimator, right? Everybody needs to understand that product really well. And a lot of times there's not a lot of effort that's focused on that. So people kind of get uh, disjointed from what the, the driver of the business is, which is the sale of that product or that service. So I think whether you're the owner or you know, maybe you're the owner and you understand it, make sure your team understands it just as well so they get that passion for the product and service. Yeah, agreed. Uh, well, kind of transitioning then, Eric, uh, to um, USP. I know uh, you've got a slightly different terminology that you use for that, but uh, That's right. let's uh, just kind of talk about that for a little bit because it kind of ties all of the three things that we just talked about together, the market, the industry, the product, the service. Uh, kind of what is USP if somebody doesn't know and then why is it so important? Yeah, so USP is your unique selling proposition. Um, what is it that separates your product or service from um, others that are out there, right? And uh, that's that is extremely important because the if you can't differentiate why your product or service is better than than the average, then then you're just like everybody else, right? Uh, and it really comes into play quite honestly when you're trying to market yourself. Um, now, what we use at my biz coach is a term called the market dominating position and just slight twist on the same concept. But the idea being is, as opposed to being unique, right, I want to dominate my market. So um, I don't want to just be unique with my product or service solution. I want to be able to dominate my market. And it forces you to go a little bit deeper than being unique, right? What makes my product or service different than other products and services but more specifically, what can I do to really kind of own my market, so to speak, right? And so here's the idea being is that um, when uh, uh, I'll, I'll use my brand at my biz coaches, uh, the, you know, what, it, what is it that allows us to dominate the market? What I believe allows us to dominate the market is we don't have, <clears throat> I'd say there's two or three key things, but the first one is it's not just a coach. I'm not an individual coach providing one solution based on my my current life experiences. Uh, yes, I have a lot of experience. Yes, I got a lot of insight. I've done a lot of different things over 25, 30 years, whatever it's been, that have um, provided me these insights that I can share with my clients. But more specifically, with the number of coaches that we have, it allows all of us collectively to collaborate with a client. Even if we don't do it directly and engage with the client, 
you know, I can go back to my team and I can say, hey, talking to this particular client, here's where they're at. They're dealing with some of these challenges. What are some other ideas? Here's some of my ideas. What are some other ideas that you guys might have? And we collaborate and we have people that are from other industries that have, you know, but they have similar experiences in those industries with that type of product or service. And, and so we start talking about how could we really serve this particular client? Um, so that's one way, right? Is that we have multiple coaches that are engaged in a particular client, even though it's not directly engaged with that individual one-on-one client solution, although it could be, you know, we may do a brainstorming session where I take myself and two or three other, my key coaches, and we get them on a call with a particular client because they have a specific need or challenge that they're trying to solve for. And we get in there and we brainstorm together. I mean, how valuable is that for the average business owner that doesn't even have probably doesn't even have any key leadership roles filled and, and they're just looking to solve a problem and they get on the phone with two or three other people and maybe even an accountant or a lawyer and, and, and have an opportunity to just kind of brainstorm a session and go through how we might be able to solve some of their challenges. So that, that market dominating, there's not a whole lot of other coaches out there, particularly the franchise coaching solutions that do that, right. That offer that kind of solution. Not that they couldn't, but just no, currently nobody does it. And then I think the other thing uh, is, 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 um, from a coach's perspective, um, you know, we're aggregating our brand so that we can collectively use our marketing strategy to, to expand our brand and get it out in front of more people. So, you know, when you talk about what's your market dominating position, what's the thing that sets your business apart from everybody else? And again, not just making you unique, but what can you, how can you dominate the market? And, and this is where niching is, is extremely important as well. Because the more you niche down, the more you can really own. So I might not own, let's say, for instance, um, um, restaurants. I may not be the best restaurant in Arizona. But if I can be the best Mexican restaurant in Arizona, that that's something to strive for. And I can dominate my market there. Right. Or if I, um, you know, it's uh, uh, cleaners. Uh, any kind of uh, uh, janitorial or uh, dry cleaner or or something like that. It's like, what do you do better than everybody else? Yeah. How do you dominate your market? Well, you know, for, let's say we're a dry cleaner. You know, we turn everything over in 24 hours. I don't even know that's necessarily feasible, but, <laughs> but it's like, you know, you drop it off today, you have it tomorrow, right? I mean, that that in itself, and I know for a lot of people who wait for the last minute to do certain things, that, that'd be super valuable. And people would pay a premium for that. Right. So when you are clear on who you're who you're serving and more specifically, what's most important to them, you can now create a market dominating position that allows you to determine your value in the market. Yeah. Right. So uh, if, if I am doing things that nobody else is doing, I can charge a premium for my brand or I can charge what everybody else is charging and really truly dominate the market because I'm doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, but I'm doing it faster, uh, less expensive, right? Because I've incorporated technology and I'm doing things that most other people in my industry aren't. That's a great place to, a great way to try and dominate your market is look at a market that's not terribly uh, technically advanced and introduce the solutions that are out there. You just haven't made the time or the investment to do it incorporate that into your business. And now you can truly dominate your peers. And that allows you to really kind of take it to the next level because you're offering better solutions and, and more effectively 
uh, more, more cost effectively. Uh, and chances are you could, even if you match the existing pricing models that are out there, um, you can do it in such a way that everybody's gonna be like, no, there's nowhere else for me to go. I have to go there. That that's yeah. the place I need to go because they solve my problem and they do it better than anybody else. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's critical to your, to your point. I mean, it just brings clarity for you as the owner and, and your team to understand, you know, who are we, what do we do and what makes us different and, and having right. everybody on that page is super important. But I also think, you know, our sales background, right. The, the elevator pitch, right. You've got 30 mm -hmm. seconds to communicate information about what you do. Um, if you just tell them the first two things of who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, I know, you know, 30 other people that do that same thing. That's but it. if you add in that market dominating position, that USP, Oh, uh, you, you had that little twist that makes you different, makes you better, makes you unique, unique. Not only, you know, are you more likely to get more sales, but you're more memorable. Right. And, and I think that's Absolutely. key because, um, a, a lot of businesses, right. Technology is allowing people, you know, those barriers to entry are down. So people are jumping into industries that traditionally were a little bit more, um, had more gatekeeping right to them. And so you're right. getting a lot more competition. So how do you stand out? in that environment, it's that market-dominated position. So right. couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, a quick note, you know, when we had the trucking business, uh, we had a 98% on-time delivery. Awesome. Um, that, that, that in itself, that's, that sheer statistic was, able, was one of the major contributors to allow us to grow our trucking business as quickly as we did. Yeah. Because brokers and other co companies would hear about that, be familiar with it and be like, we want these guys. Yeah. A lot of trucking companies, you want the one that's always on time? Yeah. <laughs> Only one choice. That's us, right? So there you go. Awesome. Uh, but interesting, uh, great transition to uh, our final topic for uh, today, which is uh, know your key metric. So great key metric there, 98% on-time delivery. Um, right. There's so many other important metrics. And I don't know that we'll get into every metric because uh, I know you are a fan of metrics and spreadsheets and financials. So maybe we keep it a little surface level today, but um, maybe just talk about conceptually <laughs> on a whole, why is it important for small business owners to have key metrics, to define those metrics, and uh, how does that help their business? So I'm not sure how to take that, David. Are you suggesting? That <laughs> You're, very You're very thorough. You're very thorough. Yeah, uh, no, but it's a it's a great point. Uh, you know, one of the things, uh, and I would say it was probably the last two corporate opportunities that I had, where um, and if I call them that, they weren't really truly corporate, but they were bigger organizations that allowed me to really kind of dig in. The first experience was a um, a singular dealer at the time, and 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 I remember there was a a the owner brought us together, a lot of key people, and we sat down and we talked about what were some of the, the, the um, and it, this is before, we didn't use the term, I don't remember anybody using the term key metrics, but we were dialing in some key numbers that would help us manage the business better. Um, and every business struggles with whether or not, every business owner, I should say, struggles with whether or not they should share their data with their employees, like their financial data, you know, um, are we making a profit? How much profit are we making? You know, how much does it cost? cost to, to do these different things, to run this store, do that, whatever. And, and every business owner struggles with that. I've been with business owners that were, would never want to share that information. I have others that are like, you know what, I, I'm going to share it with everybody because at the end of the day, I think they'll make better decisions. I, 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 I probably prescribed to the second strategy far more than I would with keeping it under wraps. But I can see there's reasons for that from time to time, particularly depending on the business. Now, 
The point here is, is that when you are very clear with the key metrics, the key drivers that really move your business, you don't need to worry about P&L statements so much as you can dial into these key metrics. And we say seven to 10, it could be seven to 12, but somewhere between seven and 12, you have a handful of metrics that you can look at. You don't need to look at your P&L. Here's the problem with a P&L. And, and this is by far and away the biggest challenge with most business owners. They only look at their profit and loss statements, maybe occasionally their balance sheet and a few other, I mean, maybe a cash flow statement, but seldom do they get into those other documents. And they're not necessarily valuable to make important decisions on a day in and day out basis. And the reason being is because when you're looking at that information, that information is old. <laughs> it's, it's an accumulation of 30 days worth of data, which usually took a week or two to prepare or tie up and, and finalize. So what I'm looking at, so for instance, I sell on what month are we in April, right? So on March one, we start, we sold our product first product for that month. And we sell through the 31st of March and now it's April 19th. Right. And, and, and as I'm looking at that and I say, okay, well, it's April 19th. They put all my numbers together and I sit down and look at that P and L. Is there any coaching? Let me rephrase that. Well, is there any timely coaching that I can provide right now that would have affected sales on, on, on March two, three, four, five, six, right? I can go back and I can look at the data and say, Hey, we didn't have a great month or Hey, we had a great month, but there is zero coaching I could have done to course correct throughout the month. And that's the problem with running your business and looking at your P and L's is you're waiting for your bookkeeping team, your accountant, whoever it is that's doing your numbers and providing that data to you. What you need are numbers you can get access to daily so that you can course correct daily. Yeah. You know, we, we, at the conference, we talked about that. Somebody asked me, you know, point blank, because we were talking about metrics. And I said, look, at the end of the day, you have to be able to adjust your business daily because I, I, I and I used the plane analogy, right? The, the, the plane takes off from LA flying in New York and and, uh, you know, if you in aeronautics and you, you, you fly at all, um, if you if I ask this question, I still get people who don't answer it, don't understand it. But it's a, the, the question is, is if I take off from New York or from L.A. and I fly to New York, what percentage of time is the aircraft off off course? And the correct answer is like ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the time. And people are like, what? And yet we land in New York on time, you know, <laughs> maybe even early, maybe occasionally late, but, you know, generally speaking without any hitches, because throughout the 3000 plus mile trip that the, your, your computerized system is making micro adjustments based on wind variation. And I don't know, a, a bird flapping its wings or whatever it is that could potentially create any of uh, and, and remember you're 3000 miles. So how many different atmospheric changes are you going to go through? Right. right. You know, like, you know, from, from flying over the, the, the desert to flying over the mountains and the Rockies or flying over the plains in the Midwest, or, you know, at 8,000, 12,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, whatever, right. All the different, you're going to have all these different variations against the plane. So it's making all these micro adjustments. You have to run your business the same way. You cannot go day one to day 30 and then at the end of the month after you've got all your information, go back and recap and expect to actually make a difference. You yeah. can have a recap it and go through that, sure. But by the time now it's the 19th of April, 
if I get the information and I start saying, okay, well, based on what I see from last month, right? And it wouldn't be unreasonable to get my data 10 to 15 days after the end of the month. So here it is, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm like, and I finally get time. Okay. The accountant gave it to me on the 15th. It's the 19th. I'm looking at the data. David, let's sit down and talk about your business this month. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's already the 19th of April. Half this month is already gone now. Yeah. More than right. half. Yeah. So anything that I thought I could correct from March 1 till April 19th is irrelevant. Yeah. So this is why it's so important to have key metrics that you can dial in and you can literally track daily at minimum, at absolute minimum. It has to be weekly. Yeah. So you can make adjustments. And so these things would be, you know, like in the retail environment, how many people are you seeing a day? So we used to track door counts. You know, if it's um, if it's a service based business, it's, you know, how many impressions are hitting your website out of those impressions? How many people are, are downloading your 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 free information that you're providing. Um, you know, if you're, um, um, how many how many people are hitting the website? How many people are downloading your free information? How many people that download the free information are actually sch scheduling an appointment to learn more about your business? And out of those people, how many you're closing? Right. Well, you can literally get that information daily and recap it on a day in and day out basis. Right. So if you have a sales organization and you may be that one salesperson, but you can literally look at that information daily. Well, if you know that you need to have 30 sales at a thousand bucks to bring in thirty thousand dollars for the month and, and hit your three hundred fifty thousand dollar revenue number for the year. Well, that means that you, you, you need how if I have to have 50 people hit the website to have, you know, 15 people download the, the, the free thing to have five people schedule appointment to close at 20 percent and you get one sale. And that's my one sale. All I need to do is make sure that I'm getting at least 50 people hitting the website, 50 right. qualified people hitting the website looking for information. Yeah. And, you know, that, and, and, and every business is like that if you dig in well enough and you understand your numbers, you know, and so you can get into those metrics and figure out what those key ones are. So there in that scenario, I give you four metrics. Yeah. Yeah. You take that along with, okay, what's the lifetime value of that customer? How many more times is that customer going to buy from you? How much did it cost to get you to get those 50 people on the website? And so you got 50 people on the website. You got a cost to acquire the 50 people. You got the one person at a thousand dollar sale, but that's actually probably closer to 1500 because I'm going to sell them additional products. So what's the upsell about what's the upsell opportunity to that particular client? Uh, and, and so there's six metrics. There might be one or two others that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. And all of a sudden, I got my seven or eight metrics that if I track those every day, I know that I'm crushing my $350,000 number at the end of the year. I don't have to dig into my P&Ls and I don't have to wait for somebody to give me that data. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just as a side note, that speaks to um, not necessarily AI, but automated functions, right? All yeah. of that data, if it's if I'm using it correctly, uh, there's a way to track all of that data, have all that data fed to me daily. Yeah. And literally just look at a report every day and say, okay, yep, we did this, we did this, we did this. And it cost me a little bit more to get my 50 people today because I'm, I'm paying a pay-per-click or whatever it is, right? And I mean, these are simple, these are real generic numbers, but you know, it's costing me you know, $2.50 as opposed to we budgeted for $1.50. But yeah. to get to get my 50 people you know, per, per click to get uh, the 50 people on the website. So what's in, in my ad budget is, I don't know, $5,000 to get 50 people on the site. Yeah. Not, not per day, but on, on, on a monthly basis. So if I spend $5,000 and it brings me 30 sales at an average of $1,000 or $30,000, that's pretty good ad spend. It's about 16%. It's maybe a little bit high, depending on where you're at in maturity of your business. But 
all of those numbers aggregate into now just from those handful of numbers, I can tell you whether or not my business is profitable. What, you know, if I go three days in a row without a sale, I recognize there's a problem. And I go back and I look and say, is it okay? Because I didn't have 50 people at the website. Is it because I didn't get 15 people to download, you know, my free thing or whatever? Was it because I didn't get five appointments scheduled? But, but either way, I can go back and figure out what my disconnect is. Yeah, no, and it, it's, um, as you've been talking and thinking about kind of where you started was on that level of transparency. I kind of want to revisit that real quick because I think even, you know, where, where we land in that, you know, spectrum or continuum of, of transparency, um, you know, big, big fans of goal setting, you and I, in fact, you literally sure. wrote the book on goal setting, success with goals, check it out if you haven't. Uh, but I think it's important to, you know, set annual goals, uh, do quarterly, you know, strategic planning, revisit the goals, adjust as needed. So those are all things that are really important. But I think, you know, of course, you need to tie that back to metrics. And it's critical you communicate that to um, the entire organization. So everybody understands, you know, for this year, for this quarter, for this month, for today, you know, what is the metric that we need to be driving as an organization and what's my part in that? And so that's one kind of strategic thing that you need to be thinking about as a business owner, but also taking that a step further. And uh, a lot of business owners don't do this. It's, it's a scorecard for every employee. So every department, every employee, they have a scorecard, something that they're uh, measured on, something that they're held to that relates to those larger goals for that quarter, for that year. And when you have that level of clarity around those goals and people's contribution to the goal and what right looks like, um, your business is that much more successful. So wanted to just kind of touch on that and kind of bring that all together uh, from what you were talking about. And then also um, one of the things you're talking about is kind of identifying, you know, the leading indicator versus the lagging indicator. So, you know, talked about conversion or click-through rate, those are the things that if you're focused on those every day, that's going to drive, you know, the, ultimately the profitability on the back end, but don't focus on the back end, focus on leading indicators. So just kind yes. of. Yeah, great point. And I didn't use that terminology, but that's exactly right. Yeah, the leading indicators are that's and, and see the, the beauty of using leading indicators is you can actually share that data uh -huh. with your employees and not feel like you're at risk of exposing how much money yeah. you're making in the business. I mean, the, the, the big rub for most small business owners is they're like, well, I got six employees. And if they know that I'm making $300,000 a year in profit, now, first of all, the average person doesn't understand that $300,000 in profit <laughs> is not $300,000 in profit. No. Uh, no. There's taxes to pay. There's capital expenditures that, that come out of that. Um, there's money that I have to put back into the business or at least have access to for the business. So I can't just go and put that in my pocket necessarily. Um, so a lot of people, that's part of the reason why they don't like to share that. Um, you know, I'm more of, I said before, I'm more of a proponent of sharing that information because then it helps people understand they're, they're afraid you're, you know, somebody's going to run off and start the business on their own. And yeah. I'm like, Hey, you know, if, if they really have that, that, that uh, they're willing to go out and do that, then more power to them. Because quite honestly, at the end of the day, they're going to find out the hard way. <laughs> it's not that easy. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and they might be a little more humble when they come back to work for you again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, in all honesty, the reality is, is that I believe an educated employee is a more valuable employee. And I think that the, the scarcity mentality that owners, owners demonstrate when they don't want to share that kind of data and information, um, really, that's, the, that's, that's a concern because that is a leading indicator of an owner that likely is not going to scale the business beyond a certain point. 
because they're not willing to bring people in. They're not willing yeah. to trust them enough to help them understand how the business runs and what are some of the key, key things that they need to be measuring and tracking on a regular basis. And consequently, what ends up happening is now they don't have somebody who can run the day-to-day -day operations. And yeah. so they're always tied to the business because they're the only one that can look at that information and make those decisions. And that's not accurate, Yeah. but because of that scarcity mentality, they're kind of tied to that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something earlier too, which is when people have that information, right? When they understand the health of the business, if you have the right people, they make better decisions. And, and I think that's that, exactly right. so true. I mean, if, if everybody is committed, you know, if they're really, you know, a culture fit and they're a good team member and they've, they've been with you and they see the vision and they know the business is struggling, they're going to be more cost conscious. They're going to, you know, work that little bit of extra discretionary effort to try to get a couple more clients. They're going to, yep. you know, fight a little harder to retain somebody. And, and if you have the right team, then I, I think it helps to be more transparent and to at least, you know, maybe you don't share the nuts and bolts and the numbers and EBITDA and all that, but at least share, hey, things are going really well right now or things are not going so great. And here's where we need to focus to make things better. And so I think having at least some level of transparency, and if you don't feel comfortable to your point, Eric, you probably have the wrong team um, and you may need to reevaluate that. Or maybe you need to you know, loosen the reins a little bit. And I think that's important. Right. So great points. Yeah. And, and it could be your core team has access to the really important information, yeah. but the high level key metrics, everybody needs to know that because to your yeah. point, those being those leading indicators, those that that's those are my coaching points. Yeah, you know, David, we didn't convert at you know fifty percent yesterday. We didn't convert at thirteen percent on this category of this part of the business or whatever. And and consequently, because we didn't, for instance, we didn't close at fifteen percent. We didn't yeah. bring in the number of uh, cell phone sales that we needed to bring in, and your attachment rate wasn't. 45% on accessories. So you missed out on this incremental revenue. I mean, literally you could tear the entire yeah. business apart with, you know, those seven to 10 key metrics Absolutely. and, and you know exactly where you stand on any given day. Yeah. But it's, and it's powerful when you can do that across departments, across teams and everybody understands everybody else's metrics. Yes. That's, that's crazy powerful. People don't understand that when sales understands the accounting and accounting understands marketing and marketing understands, you know, whatever, right. You break down those silos and everybody has a better sense of what everybody's focused on. You get a more cohesive team. Absolutely. And to your point, everybody knows what they should be focused on and, yep. and they're in alignment with achieving those goals together. Yep. Absolutely. That everybody sees how their part fits into the big master plan uh, yep. And that's one of the big disconnects from a leadership perspective is that I have a vision. It's how, how my, my vision is one thing, but how I get people to see the vision and see how their role within the vision helps us accomplish the goal. Yep. That's the key. And most leaders are, are, are have a have struggle with the opportunity to be able to get people aligned with the goal. Like yeah. they, they don't, the average employee doesn't see how their job of bookkeeping helps the company achieve that goal. Right. Yep. Right. And and so when 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 the, when the, when the bookkeeper understands how whatever it is they do, they, it could be a part time bookkeeper for all intents and purposes. But when they understand how what they do in that role helps the company achieve their overall goal of ten million dollars or whatever, let's say, yep. all of a sudden they have a better appreciation for what they do and why what they do is so important. Absolutely. And they approach their job from a completely different perspective. Yeah. And critical generationally right now for Gen Z, because they want work that is meaningful. meaningful. They, 
yeah, all of those things. So super yeah. important right now. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. Awesome. Well, um, if you guys liked today's episode, uh, we're going to do a part two. So definitely make sure you subscribe. We'll be covering a few more things that are critical when it comes to knowing your business. Uh, we want to hit on a couple today. We've got a few more that we'll review on an upcoming episode. So subscribe and uh, be sure to connect with us on social media. Uh, real quick, just to recap kind of key points from today. Uh, we talked about the importance of knowing your market, your industry, your product service, your USP or market dominating position and your key metrics and action items for today's episode. Uh, use the things that we've talked about today to refine your understanding of your business. Uh, dedicate time, uh, reoccurring, right? Whether that's weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, or all of the above, um, to deep dive into those topics and identify where maybe you have gaps in your understanding of your own business. Um, and then uh, schedule time with key personnel at all levels uh, to get feedback on the business. And, and that's also to share information like key metrics, health of the organization, uh, but also get feedback on, you know, uh, what are you hearing in the industry? What are you hearing in the market? You know, what's the feedback you're hearing from customers on our product or, you know, our services? And, and that feedback can be really helpful too. So um, those are kind of the key points and action items from today's episode. Uh, Eric, before we wrap up, anything new or exciting happening at my business? coaches that you want to talk about uh, no not not a ton at my visco we got a lot of things coming out of the the conference has been a lot of great uh, learning lessons and some uh, excellent collaboration opportunities so super very excited about what's coming out of that uh even more so i would suggest that um uh made some new connections that are going to be good collaborative um uh, partnerships uh, over the next couple of months that you're going to see more evolve out of that. Uh, but uh, I'm also equally excited about the show and the, you know, some of the interviews that we have coming up. We have a few newer interview candidates that uh, we've been able to to pull together. So I'm excited about what those conversations are going to sound like and 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 the impact that they're going to bring to the show uh, and some of the stories that are associated with that. So. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, I think I'm equally excited about the show as I am about what's going on at my biz coaches. So, uh, awesome. appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to share that. Absolutely. So, well, good stuff. And again, we'll invite you one last time, shameless plug here, be, be sure to subscribe. Uh, and if you subscribe, be sure to click the little bell notification if you're on YouTube. So you get notified every time a new episode, uh, releases. And we thank you for joining us today on the biz coach show. We'll see you later. Eric. All right. Awesome. Thanks, David.